My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the July edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to cover relates to the best management of irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is common and can have a considerable impact on quality of life. Early diagnosis and timely and evidence-based management is key to improved outcomes and best care. Consideration of the differential diagnosis is important. In this issue, Christopher Black and Alexander Ford, who've previously written for us on rational and appropriate investigation, cover the best management. There are multiple different treatment options. These are discussed, including antispasmodics, peppermint oil, neuromodulators and tricyclics. There's a strong focus on good communication and holistic care and setting realistic expectations of treatment. Simple lifestyle and dietary strategies are important and the low FODMAP diet is discussed, which can be considered but providing dietetic care is available. Patients with constipation resistant to laxatives should be offered a trial of linaclotide. For patients with diarrhoea that fail to respond to loperamide, allocitron or ramocitron can be considered. For patients who are symptomatic with significant impact on their functioning, cognitive behavioural therapy and gut-directed hypnotherapy should be considered, both of whom have got a reasonable evidence base. The authors agree refractory IBS can be quite challenging and give some practical treatment options. All in all, this is an excellent review of the best available treatment options. Evidence-based, focused and practical for implementation by the busy clinician. As an accompanying podcast, this article is Editor's Choice this month. The second article I'd like to cover relates to the real-world evaluation of an intravenous iron service for the treatment of iron deficiency in patients with gastroenterological disorders. Iron deficiency anemia is common in gut disorders, including inflammatory bowel disease, although not always straightforward to treat, particularly in the context of active gut inflammation. There's been an increase in the use of intravenous iron in inflammatory bowel disease, with clinical guidance from the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization recommending intravenous iron for patients with iron deficiency anemia in the context of clinically active disease. In this issue, Kearns and colleagues report their real-world experience as part of a service evaluation and improvement process looking at estimated iron dose, need versus dose, delivery, safety and outcome. 117 patients are reported, including 51 with inflammatory bowel disease. There were a wide variety of non-IBD conditions reflecting the reality of clinical practice. Most patients that is 76.1%, received their estimated dose in one appointment. Mean plus or minus standard deviation was 1317 milligrams plus or minus 409.7 milligrams. No serious adverse effects were seen. Patients who received less than their estimated iron need were more likely to be anemic at six months. Mean haemoglobin increased from 101.6 grams per litre to 122.8 grams per litre at first follow-up at around one month and 124.2 grams per litre at six months, although by six months ferritin level had started to fall, the data's in the paper. 
In essence, the authors confirm safety and efficacy, the importance of adequate dosing, and the need for follow-up monitoring of hemoglobin and iron status. It's an important paper. It reflects effective local implementation of national and international guidance. The third paper I'd like to highlight relates to the gastrointestinal manifestations of COVID-19 in children. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis. There have been many excellent publications on COVID-19, pulling information together to inform management in parallel to the ongoing pandemic. In this article, Ackerbeng and colleagues report a systematic review and meta-analysis of the gastrointestinal manifestations of COVID-19 in children. Initially published online in August 2020, 13 case series, 4 case reports, 284 patients. In keeping with the adult data being published in parallel to the same time, gastrointestinal symptoms are common and present in up to 25% and include diarrhoea, vomiting and abdominal pain. This early data set was an important part of the evidence base highlighting non-respiratory manifestations and the importance of atypical presentations of COVID-19. The fourth article I'd like to highlight relates to disease monitoring of biological treatment in inflammatory bowel disease, early impact and future implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's an interesting article. COVID-19 has forced us to reflect on our practice and make practical changes to enable us to do the best for our patients within the limitations enforced by the ongoing pandemic. In this article, Shields and colleagues consider this published online in September 2020, discussing the secondary impact of COVID-19 on patients with inflammatory bowel disease. This has included less access to acute services, less endoscopy, temporary cessation of faecal calprotectin measurements because of the concerns about risk of transmission, and a significant reduction in therapeutic drug monitoring. The authors summarised their practice adaptations listed in full in the article and including the increased use of virtual technology, expansion of capacity of the helpline, hot IBD clinics, cohorting biological infusions, phlebotomy clinics for selected patients and the launch of remote point-of-care faecal calprotectin testing. As the pandemic starts to settle, at least in the UK, we need to plan for a post-COVID-19 world and continue with at least some of the positive changes which has helped us streamline care and deliver services more effectively for the benefit of patients. The next article I'd like to highlight relates to challenges and opportunities of COVID-19 for gastroenterology and hepatology services. The opportunity during recovery phase of the pandemic to reboot and redesign our services including the way we work across the gastroenterology and hepatology community, is considered by Tham and colleagues in an excellent opinion piece, which includes six key principles for service redesign. Enhanced senior triage, enhanced team working, the correct balance between virtual and face-to-face -face consultations, an enhancement of the one-stop approach to consultations, reliable and dynamic information technology, and proactive job planning to recognise change and innovation. 
The practicalities of implementation of these strategies will require dynamic local and national leadership and have the potential post-pandemic to enhance the care offered to patients. It's important we consider the issues relating to training. And the fifth article I'd like to highlight relates to how can gastroenterology training thrive in a post-COVID world? COVID has been massive for education training across all sectors and recovery from this is going to be ongoing, long, complex and difficult. This presents different challenges in different areas. In this issue, Fitzpatrick and colleagues, in an opinion piece, discussed the practicalities for gastroenterology training, increasingly craft-based, in the context of the implementation of shape of training. The ongoing constraints are well known and continue to change in parallel to the ongoing pandemic. The authors carefully work through the challenges and proposed solutions, focusing on endoscopy training, training in clinic, subspatiality exposure and planned education activities. The strategies will of course evolve, but this is an important document to read now. The trainees reflect the future of our speciality and this article is forward-thinking and dynamic in its approach, remembering that out of adversity comes opportunity. The final article I'd like to highlight relates to capsule endoscopy training. There's no doubt the impact of endoscopy services has been profound from a service and training point of view, with now a massive backlog of cases. In this article, Conley and colleagues discuss and reflect on the potential window to develop further the role of endoscopy training in our clinical practice, considering training opportunities and practicalities. This is interesting to think through now. This will require a clear structure and certification process with the establishment of service delivery and training networks. The enhanced information technology necessitated by COVID-19 and the potential for remote reporting are fundamental to this being effective. There's an excellent accompanying commentary by Mark McCallidan discussing the huge future potential for capsule endoscopy, including the application of artificial intelligence to enhance diagnostic provision, COVID-19, impetus to the adoption of capsule endoscopy as a primary diagnostic tool. I hope that my brief summary of these articles are of interest and I hope very much that you'll access them in full in the journal and the other content. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read and join feedback on Frontline Gastroenterology. Follow us on Twitter. Listen to our regular podcasts and access the blog. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening.